Alright, let's open our Bibles tonight to 2 Peter chapter number 2. 2 Peter chapter number 2. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord with you. Amen. A lot of places we could be, but I'm glad that you're here tonight. I believe you chose the best place to be. Amen. Now you could have sat at home and watched gun smoke, but you done seen it a thousand times. Amen. Or you could have sat at home and watched somebody do to their house what you wish you could do to your house. Amen. But uh, I, I'm glad you did what you did in coming to the house of God. Second Peter chapter number 2. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 11. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse number 1. The Word of God says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God, and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are giving unto, given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you bless the preaching of thy word tonight. May it speak to the hearts of your people, and may Christ be magnified in everything that's said. Give us a right understanding of Scripture, a personal application of it to our hearts, to our lives. And Lord, may we be obedient to you as you seek to perform that work in us. Lord, we know that if you have your will and way in us, we'll be the better for it, and you'll receive the glory. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to make special note tonight of what verse number 5 says concerning the salvation of the believer and their spiritual condition. Now, before we get to it, I want us to notice that the Apostle Peter makes some definitive statements about the station of the believer. He's writing to people that have obtained, verse 1, like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's speaking to people to whom have been given, verse number 3, all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Not only that, but He's speaking to people who have and have available to them the divine nature. He says that by these, verse 4, you might be partakers of the divine nature. He's talking to people that have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But given all of these things that he has said, I'm interested to note that in verse number 5, uh, Peter says this, beside this. Now, what does he mean? What is the this that he's saying beside of this? He's talking about the standing or station of the believer that they have through salvation. 
He's talking about how God views the believer once he's born again and all that is entailed in that and all that is distributed to him because of that. But he says beside this, beside everything that God has already done in your heart, already done in your life, everything that's been granted and given unto you through Jesus Christ, beside all this, he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, adding to your faith. And before we really get to the message, I want us to note a few things that he said, and I want to make a few statements about what Peter is not saying. He's not saying, help your faith be enough. He's saying, add to your faith. He's talking to people that have obtained like precious faith. Not people that hope for like precious faith, but people that have already obtained like precious faith. Now you say, preacher, why is that important? Because there's some folks that would have us to believe that what he's saying here is that we need to help God save us. Can I tell you tonight, God doesn't need any help saving us. He is enough to save us. And so sometimes people will take a passage like this, they'll twist that and they'll say, well, your faith is not enough on its own and that's why you have to add something to it. No, Peter spends plenty of time letting us know that we have all of Jesus that there is to get, that we have a sufficient supply concerning our standing with God. Every person that's ever been saved has been sufficiently saved. Somebody say amen to that. God had never half saved nobody. Uh, God had never almost saved nobody that came unto Him in faith and called upon Him. Any that come to Him, He will in no wise cast out. So Peter is not saying that we need to somehow make our uh, faith enough for God. No, he goes out of his way to remind us that our faith through Jesus Christ, or rather, let me say this, His faith in us is sufficient to get us to heaven. By the same token, some people would suggest that what this is saying is that we need to add something to our salvation to make sure we don't lose our salvation. Down in verse number 10 where it says, Rather, brethren, giving, uh, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. And some people would say that what that's telling us is that our salvation is not sure unless we live it. But that's not what your King James Bible says. It doesn't say, wherefore, the rather brethren, giving diligence to make your salvation sure. Rather, it's saying your calling and election sure. A lot of this confusion comes from folks trying to make election salvation. And that's not what it is in your Bible. Uh, the term election means uh, something that is set apart or is choice in a particular way. And here's what he's saying. You need to make sure that people, when they see your life, they can see that you're a Christian. He does not say uh, that if we do these, if we don't do these things, we're going to fall from grace. The term fall from grace, of course, is found in the book of Galatians. Even there, it does not reflect the idea of losing your salvation. Uh, but he does not say if you do these things, you'll never lose your salvation. You know why he doesn't say that? Because whether you do these things or don't do these things, you'll never lose your salvation. Because your salvation is not yours to lose in the first place. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I am persuaded that, that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. When I got saved, I committed the keeping of my soul unto Him as unto a faithful Creator, Peter says. And He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him. And that's the keeping of my soul. It doesn't say you'll not lose your salvation or will lose your salvation because that's not even in the discussion. But it's saying you'll not fall. Meaning you will not fall away in your faithfulness to the Lord. You will not live a life of wandering or of disobedience. So, now that we've looked at what he has not said that it is, let's take a few moments tonight and notice what he is saying in this passage. There are three thoughts, broadly speaking, that we could find in this text. I'll just go ahead and give them to you and then preach it. 
preach them to you. Verses 1 through 4, Peter discloses to the believer that they are fully supplied regarding spiritual resources. Fully supplied. That's what he says in verse number 3. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. I don't know if you know what the word all means, but the word all means all. Amen? I know that's simplistic. If you wonder what the word all means, then uh, sometime whenever uh, you're sharing a meal with somebody uh, and they say, I want all of this or all of that, you just reach your hand over and try to take some. You're going to find out what all means. Amen? I've got a basic rule. Some of y'all ain't going to like what I'm about to say, but I've got a basic rule when I take my family out to eat. I will buy my wife anything on the menu. I'll buy her a dozen of anything on the menu. But when I order something for me, it's for me. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> if you if you want french fries, I'll buy you your french fries, but you leave my french fries alone. Amen? You know why? Because I want all my french fries. Amen? I want all my hamburger. I want all my whatever it might be. The word all means all. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. The second thought that we find here is that given that we have been given the resources to live the life that God intends for us, and given, and I want to be careful how I say this, your station or your relationship with God, the moment He saves you, is everything that God desires for it to be. But if you're like me, your life, your Christian life, how you live, how you behave, uh, oftentimes we don't live up to the things that God has called us to. And so he's saying, I've given you everything you need to be the Christian I desire for you. And because of that, you should not rest back and say, well, I'm saved and it's good enough just to be saved. Let me tell you, it's good to be saved. But as regards the calling of God on your life and mine, it's good to be saved, but it's not good enough to just be saved. God didn't save you just so you could barely get in. God saved you so you could be made into the image of Christ. And in light of that, he tells us that we should not only uh, that we are fully supplied, but that we should be fruitfully supplementing the things that God has already done in our life. Your salvation should not have been the peak of your walk with God. It should have been the beginning of your walk with God. And in light of that, he says, beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, and he gives us a list of things. And then finally, we have a third thought given. In verse number 11, he tells us that if we do these things, so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's saying this, that if a person lives this way, not only are they fully supplied, not only should they be fruitfully supplementing, but if they do that, then they will finish strong in their Christian life. Now, what could we notice about these things? Number one, they are fully supplied. We have everything we need to live the Christian life. But what are those things and where do those things reside? Look back with me at verse number one. Peter says, Simon Peter and a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained, underscore in your heart, your mind, your margin, whatever your custom is, but underscore that word obtained. He doesn't say you hope to get it one day. He doesn't say you're striving to get it. He says you have obtained. He's talking to saved people, people that have been born again. And he says you've obtained like Precious faith. And you could underscore that word precious because he is emphasizing here the richness of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. But notice he does not say our faith. He does not say you have administered your faith or you have developed your faith. He says you have obtained like precious faith with us. How did we do that? Through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. When he speaks of faith here, he is not speaking of faith 
practically or generically, but he is speaking of it doctrinally as a body of truth. And he's saying, when you came to Lord Jesus Christ, you became a partaker in this relationship that exists between God and those that call upon God through Jesus Christ. And that has been effectuated in your life through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Let me say this, number one, tonight we see the source of our supply. Where does it reside? Where does these resources? Probably everybody in this room would say, Preacher, I want to be a better Christian. I know that's my desire, and and I probably don't always live that way, but certainly in my heart and mind, it's a stated desire of my life. I want to be a better Christian. I want to have bolder faith. I want to have greater patience. I want to have more love for Christ and for the brethren. Where do I get those things? Well, we're told here that the supply is the righteousness of God. Not righteousness through God, but the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So in other words, the way we become the Christian God desires for us to be is not by emulating Christ, but rather it is by permitting Christ to live through us through our obedience unto Him. There are times over and over again, and the one that sticks out in my mind is in Philippians chapter number 3, when Paul talks about uh, how that he ceased to try to establish his own righteousness, and instead uh, he accepted the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ. Not faith through Jesus Christ, not faith in Jesus Christ, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm saying. The key to you being the Christian God desires for you to be is not for you to look at Jesus and say, I want to be like Him. But rather, it's for you to look at Jesus and say, boy, if I keep making the decisions in my life, I'm never going to be like Him. If I keep running my life, I can never be like Him. But if I mortify self and simply obey His Word and obey His Spirit so that His will, His wishes, His desires are being lived through me, then it is no longer my faith in Him. It is His faith through me that is determining the way that I behave. The source of our supply is Him. It's all about Him. This is why it's a futile effort to try to live the Christian life without Christ. Alienated in our fellowship with Him and not speaking to Him, not walking with Him, not listening to Him. Uh, If we attempt to do that, here's what we'll have. A form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Almost like when you pour concrete and you build a form. If you look at it on a two-dimensional plane, it looks a certain way, but the problem is there's no substance to it. And when a person tries to live the Christian life through their own strength, through their own ability, they may be able to put on a show and project a certain image, but God who looks on the inside, God who sees it from every dimension, sees that there's no substance to it. God's not interested in you mimicking Christ. God is interested in Christ living through you. He's not interested in your best attempt at looking like Jesus. He's interested in you dying to self and letting Christ live through you. We see the source of our supply, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. We see the sufficiency of that supply. Notice what he says. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do we get grace and peace? We get it by knowing God more and knowing Jesus Christ more. How is that accomplished? According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. I don't want to get ahead of my message. Let me just make this simple statement. I want you to notice that it says all things. Every believer is instantaneously equipped with every spiritual resource that they need to live for Jesus Christ. Do you know, by the way, why that is? It's because the... the Boy, how do I say this right? The nature of Christ in us, on our part, is passive in nature, not active. In other words, the issue is not that we need to build up a great treasure trove of spiritual superpowers. 
but rather that we merely need to yield our life to Him that is perfect in every way. If we'll let Him have His will and His way, we'll find not that we are enough, because we were never enough, but we'll find that He is always enough. As long as you're trying, and I've given this illustration before, the difference between uh, on a football. Uh, do they still have football? Is that a thing? Are we? Do we know if we're going to have football this fall? I don't know. Yeah, who cares? That's what it comes down. We got some kind of, uh, we got, all right, all right, I have confirmation, amen. And uh, But, you know, when you watch football, you'll see that, that oftentimes, particularly when you get to the pro level, but oftentimes much of the play calling is done not by the coach, but by the quarterback. You'll see them in particular quarterbacks were great play callers throughout history. Generally, the smarter they are, the better they'd be at it. But you'd see them running around with a copy of the playbook there on their wrist. And whenever most of the plays would be called, uh, they wouldn't be called from the sideline by the coach, but they'd be called by the quarterback there in the huddle. And he is assuming that he knows what the mind of the coach is. There are times, however, when a coach would have to intervene, would have to come and say, look, from where you're standing, it looks this way. But from where I'm standing, it looks a different way. Sometimes an offensive coordinator up in the booth would look down and have to say, from where you're standing, it looks a certain way, but from where I'm standing, it looks different. They'd have to uh, supersede. They'd have to uh, go over the head of the quarterback and say, no, you need this play instead of the other play because they had a better perspective. Let me make this simple application. I'll move on. Too often as Christians, we're trying to call the plays of our life from the huddle. Instead of going to the Lord, seeking Him, letting Him have His will, His way in our life, we're saying, well, this is what I think God would want, so this is what I'm going to do. Uh, yeah, listen, and there are certain things God has been abundantly clear in His Word that, you know, there's some things you and I don't have to pray about. I know that. We don't have to pray about whether to sin. We don't have to pray about going to church. We don't have to pray about witnessing. But in the decisions that we make in our life, there is a great danger that we begin to become presumptuous and say, oh, this is probably what God would want in the first place. That's not what Christian life is. Christian life is not us doing our best to mimic what we think God would want, but rather it's us mortifying self and saying, Lord, it's not my ambitions, not my desires, not my life, but it is you. You have your will and your way. And you know what we'll find when we do that? And it's no longer us, it's Him. We'll find that though we are sufficient for nothing, He is sufficient for everything. He is all sufficient. How do we do this? Well, notice the securing of our supply. And I'm going to back up and read verse 3 again. It says, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things. By the way, how did His divine power do that? Well, we're told in the book of Ephesians that this took place when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at heavenly places and raised us with Him. When He brought Christ back from the dead, when He raised Christ from the dead and gave Him to be our mediator, with Him He hath given us all things. So that if we have Christ, we have all that we need. That's what the resurrection life of Christ is. Him risen, living through us, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now, how do we access that? Through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So living the Christian life is being like Jesus Christ. We can't do that on our own, but we can do that through His life lived through us. How do we accomplish this? By knowing Him better. The more we know Him, uh, the more we'll understand what God desires for us to be through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to what? Well, to glory and to virtue. Not to lower living and low standards, but to the life of Christ. Now, how does this take place? Notice the securing of our supply. What I mean is, how do we tap into that? How do we access that? Verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Now, we could go through, there's hundreds of promises in the Word of God 
But I think what Peter has in mind is the recognition that God's desire for your life and mine is for us to be like Christ. And that in granting to us a relationship to Him through Jesus Christ, He has made available to us the life of Christ in us. When in other words, we, rather than leaning on our own wisdom and intuition, we instead say it's not about living the way I want, it's about living the way that He wants. And we say, I know that I can live that way because He can live that life through me. We lean upon that promise. We don't lean under our own understanding. We lean upon that promise. Here's what He said. That by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So in other words, by believing the promises of God, living in obedience to the Word of God, the divine nature of Christ is lived through us. And we are then made partakers of that divine nature. Now, I know we move that through that what machine gun fast, but I wanted you to understand as a foundation, he, he begins by saying this, you've got everything you need. You've got everything you need. Sometimes Christians get this sort of poor mouthing mentality of woe is me and it's just so difficult on me and I'm trying my best, but you know, I just don't know that I can live for the Lord. I just don't know that I can be faithful to church. Just don't know that I can read my Bible. Just don't know that I can pray because you know, it's really difficult. Well, listen, I sympathize with you all day, all day long. We can weep and cry together. But if I'm to tell you the truth, the honesty is this. You have as much of Christ as the greatest Christian that ever lived. I have as much of Christ as the greatest Christian that has ever lived. If we choose not to live for Christ, it's because we've chosen not to live for Christ. It's not because He's not been enough for us. We are fully supplied with everything in the nature and person of Christ that we possibly need. So then what should we do in light of that? Well, because of that, because we have everything we need, uh, we ought to be fruitfully supplementing the salvation that God has already performed in us when He saved us by growing in the Lord and adding not just the basic bare level of I'm saved and that's good enough, but saying now how can I multiply my relationship, my walk with God and the characteristics of Christ through me. Notice what he says, a few things here. One, we see that the addition of these things, and the reason I say these things, we'll go through the laundry list, but he's talking about the character of Christ lived through us. Not sufficient to say, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven. That's true if you've been born again. But you likewise should not say that that's enough in regards to how you live your life. You should say, I want more of Christ through my life. The addition of these things is recommended in verses 5 through 7. What are these kinds of things? And I'm just going to make some passing comments on them. He says, beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Virtue is righteous living. Can I say this? All of the faith that we have doesn't mean a lick if it does not affect the way that we live our lives. The first thing that we add to our faith, and what is that faith? Well, that's faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the faith used generically of our relationship with God. What's the first thing we add to that? Is clean living, righteous living, holy living. Add to your faith virtue. Oftentimes we want to add a lot of other things. We want to add things like brotherly kindness. Well, that comes in course. But God says, before you get to that brotherly kindness, why don't you add virtue to it? Oftentimes we want to add knowledge. Well, knowledge is pretty important. It's the next thing on the list. But listen, God's not interested in us having knowledge if we don't have virtue. The first thing we add is righteous living, clean living, obedient living. He says, add your faith virtue. And then once you have virtue, then God's interested in you having knowledge. Then after we're living right and doing right and behaving right, God wants us to know what His Word teaches 
We, and listen, I, I, I sure enough ain't here to beat up on a Wednesday night crowd. You're here because you love the Lord and you're interested in the Word of God. So understand that with what I'm about to say. But we live in probably the day that we live in is the most biblically, scripturally illiterate day in spite of the fact that we have more access to the truth of the Word of God than we have ever had in human history. It is appalling how little so many people know of what the Word of God teaches. And there's no excuse for that. Not for me, not for you. Hey, listen, we traveled all the way across the country. We put 5,800 miles on a rental car. And every hotel, every lodge, every place we stopped in had a Gideon's Bible sitting right there in the nightstand. And chances are, you and I haven't... I know this is true of me if it ain't true of you. We've got enough Bibles sitting on our bookshelf that we ought to be embarrassed about. How dare we have all this access and not add to our faith Knowledge. He says, add to knowledge temperance. Temperance is self-restraint. Self-restraint. Every believer ought to, boy, this is tough, man. Every believer ought to make sure that the Holy Spirit has the mastery of their life. Uh, it, listen, that's hard, especially as regards things in, in our life, uh, you know, hobbies and, and habits and things that may exist in our life that rob the autonomy of our life away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about self-restraint. It's about spiritual restraint. Making sure the Lord has true governance over our life. To temperance, we ought to add patience. Patience. Patience is not a pleasant attribute. It is in other people. But it's not fun to get yourself. But we need to have patience. We need to. We need to be patient believers. To patience, we add godliness. Godlikeness. That's what godliness is, right? Godlikeness. If holiness is the attribute of holiness, then godliness is the attribute of godlikeness. In other words, we ought to desire that our character be tailored to emulate or to, and boy, I know, listen, with what I just preached, it ought to look like God. And again, that's not accomplished by us through sheer brute force of will trying to mold ourselves, but it's accomplished through the life of Christ lived through us. But we ought to look at our lives and ask ourselves this, is the way I'm living, does it look like what God is and who God is in His Word. He says to godliness, brotherly kindness. I'm going to make a point here and then move on. And he says into brotherly kindness, charity. Charity is is uh, is divine love of mercy and grace. It is divinely sourced love and affection towards another person. I understand the words that are given uh, in the Bible uh, of, of phileo and agape and so on and so forth. I, listen, I understand they're used interchangeably in your Bible. There are times that they're presented to us in the context of divine love. Other times they're presented to us in the uh, context of, of familial love. But when the word charity is used, it's used to convey the idea of divine love. And he says we ought to, we ought to add to that Charity. But notice before he ever gets to charity, he says we ought to have brotherly kindness. Now I'll tell you what my flesh wants and what your flesh wants. And you say, how do you know that preacher? Because your flesh is as rotten as mine. And I'll tell you what I know your flesh wants. Your flesh wants charity before it gets brotherly kindness. We want to feel real good about someone before we're kind to them. But it says we've got to have brotherly kindness and then from that grows charity. In other words, we exhibit kindness towards Him. Even sometimes you ain't going to feel like it. You hang around the house of God long enough, I promise you, you'll find somebody that you're going to have to love by grace. Uh, but we love them by grace nonetheless. And you know what you'll find? When we commit and resolve to love them by grace, God will give more grace. God will give more grace. He says we ought to add these things. And what will happen if we do? Well, notice not only the addition of these things is recommended, but the abundance of these things is revealed. What happens? Look what it says, Brother Ken. I ain't picking on you. I just ain't had you here, and I'm just getting to say Brother Ken. So, um, although I don't know. I mean, you know, Robin knows. He might need this. But verse number 8 says, For if these things be in you and abound, 
They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, man, I, and I'm just being, I'm being straight with you, the, the, the church of God mentality of getting the outside right to get the inside right has become pervasive even in Bible-believing churches. The notion that we get the external right and that will produce spiritual life in us. The converse is always presented in Scripture. We get what's right inside right, or we get what's inside right, and that will then produce something outward. What does he say here? He says, listen, if these things be in you, he doesn't say on you or around you. He says, if these things be in you, you get your walk with God right. And he doesn't say just get it right. He says be in you and abound. Uh, some of us, <laughs> I mean, and I'm talking about me. That's why I don't laugh because I'm talking about you. I laugh because I'm talking about me. I say uh, some of us, but I'm really talking about me, but it's easier to say than to say, you know, me. So some of us, and by that I mean me, uh, we do this, we do this, but we do it in fits and spurts. We get a little bit of it. We get a little taste of getting the inside right, of focusing on our walk and life with Christ, of focusing on developing ourselves spiritually, internally in our relationship with God. It's in us, but it ain't abounding in us. Uh, we do it for a little while, for a week, for two weeks, long enough till our problems go away, and then we abandon it, and we wonder why there's no lasting change in our life. The Word of God gives it plainly to us. It doesn't just say if these things be in you. He says they've got to be in you and they've got to abound. You don't just barely need these. You need these in abundance. But if you have those, they'll make you that you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, inasmuch as I get my life surrendered to the Lord and my walk with God in line with Him, that will then produce in me a fruitfulness of life. And more particularly, it's not necessarily just a fruitfulness externally of bearing spiritual fruit and in serving the Lord and, and having a good spirit and a good attitude and trying to win people to Christ. That's true, but what is it that it produces an abundance of? What is it that it produces fruitfulness of? What is it that it produces life in? It says in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we say we want to know more of Him, but how do we know more of Him? Boy, listen, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. We want to learn Him academically but we must learn Him experientially. The way we learn Christ is not just by a case study in the, in the particulars of His ministry and His life. Now, I'm not trying to take anything away from the study of the Word of God, but I'm saying the way that God wants us to know Him is not merely through an academic awareness and ascension to this book, but He wants us to know Him personally through His life being lived through us. There is a knowledge that goes uh, more personally than merely just the reading of God's Word. Yes, we need to read God's Word. Yes, we need to study God's Word. But there are a great many people, lost people in the world today, that have an academic knowledge and they know the book, but they don't know the Blessed Son. It's possible to have this, this cold, sterile, academic awareness and knowledge of the facts in this book but not allow the life of Christ to live through us. You say, what do we need, preacher? We ought to, as Christ told the, the Pharisees, you ought to do the one and not neglect the other. We ought to study the Word of God, but the knowledge, the way in which God desires for us to know His Son is not merely an academic awareness, but it is that of fellowship and intimate relationship with God as we surrender our will to His and as He lives through us. And we observe and behold the evidence of the power of God in our life as He works in our life as He lives through us. We see the abundance of these things is revealed. But notice what He says verse 9. We see the absence of these things is ruinous. He says, but he that lacketh these things. 
Now, wait a minute. He just got through telling us, he's saying you got saved by the grace of God on your way to heaven, born again by the blood of Christ. And he says, I want you to add these things to you. But then he says, he that lacketh these things. So now my basic math says this. If I began by saying I'm a born again, saved, blood washed believer, and he's saying add these things, then he says, if you don't add these things, he's still talking about born again, blood washed believers in verse number nine. But here's what he's talking about. Saved and only saved. There are a lot of Christians in the world today that are saved and just saved. Brother Ken, that's it. They're saved and they're just saved. They're only saved. Now, I'm not trying to minimize what salvation is, but I'm saying they got saved and they've not grown beyond that. What will that produce in a person's life? Well, he says this, he that lacketh these things is what? He is blind. He is blind. To maintain that stunted spiritual condition, you have to be blind. Elsewise, it'll be glaringly apparent to you that something is wrong in your life. Not only that, he cannot see afar off. How do you know that to be true? Because one day, he's, you and I, both of us, we're all, we're going to have to give an account for the things done in the body. Whether they be good, Brother Charlie, or whether they be bad, we're going to have to give an account. So obviously he's blind. Obviously he cannot see afar off. But then he says this, he hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Isn't that interesting? He does not say he hath forgotten that he was pardoned from his old sins. He says he hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. What's the distinction between those two words? Were it to say pardoned, it would suggest the idea that he forgot that he got born again. Of course, that's not true. Uh, a person get born again, uh, they are going to remember that they have been saved. These people would call themselves Christians. They would say, I'm a child of God. I've been saved. I've been born again. But what he's forgetting is this. When he got saved, God not only pardoned him, but he purged his life of the guilt and culpability of those old sins. Now, why would God do such a thing? He did that because he intended on him not just merely sitting there treading water and living the same way that he always did, just living that way as a believer, but rather because he wanted him to go forward in growing in his walk with Christ. He purged him because he wanted him to go on in righteousness and in obedience to the Lord. He didn't just pardon him. He did pardon him, but he didn't just pardon him. He purged those things from her life. Why? So that he could run without that weight, without that baggage, without that guilt. Hey, listen, uh, the Bible says that he has purged our conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God. He saved you, not just so you'd get to heaven. He saved you so that you'd live like Christ even in this life. Now, what will this do if we have these things? Notice these last two verses. I'll mention them and be done. He says, wherefore the rather. Now, why? what does that mean? The rather. He's saying, well, you could live uh, ignoring all of the potential and opportunity that God has provided for you in your life. You could be like those in verse 9 that lacketh these things and is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sin. Wherefore, the rather. He says, this is what I would rather happen in your life. The rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. He says, I don't want the apex of your spiritual life to be when you got up from the altar born again as a child of God. He said, what a glorious day that is. What a wonderful day that is. I mean, it was December 1st, 1997. I got born again. I could take you to the place. I could show you I, when my parents changed the carpet, I had them keep that little square of carpet. I've got it sitting in my office. I could show you. I, I'm not saying, I'm not taking anything away from that day. But what a sad testimony it would be if that was the closest I'd ever been to God. If I got saved and then from that moment forward, it was nothing but just apathy, complacence, 
indifference towards God. He says, no, that's not what I desire for you. He said, I desire for you to live in such a way that when people look at your life, they have no question whether you're a Christian or not. Here's the truth of the matter. There's a lot of people walking around that say they're Christians, but if you look at their life, there's zero evidence of it. And I, you say, preacher, what are, are those people lost? Are they saved? Hey, listen, God knows. God knows. I don't know. I don't, I have no idea. If, if they meant business with God, He meant business with them and He saved them. And it's up to God how He chastens His children. They're His kids, not mine. But I don't really know what their condition is. I do know this. It's not the will of God for anybody to live a life of, of such spiritual darkness that people don't even know whether you're a Christian or not. Rather, we see here that there's a responsibility to finish strong. He talks about the term calling and election. Calling denoting a responsibility. Something you have been called unto. This thing of living the Christian life is not optional. It's not a volunteer basis. When you got born again, when you got saved by the grace of God, you got called unto good works. You were foreordained that you'd walk there. Now let me be abundantly clear here. God don't make anybody get saved. Uh, God doesn't pretend He'd save somebody He wants. Somebody say amen to that. I'm going to say that again. God does not make anyone get saved. And God doesn't pretend He'd save anyone that He wants. What I'm saying is this nonsense of election, meaning uh, some are chosen to heaven and some are chosen to hell. There ain't an ounce of that in Scripture anyway. But once you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, this whole thing of whether you ought to live like a Christian or not, that's not up for debate. You got enrolled and enlisted, friend. You became a new creature in Christ Jesus. And whether you like it or not, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It is a calling in your life. He, Paul talks about that calling in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is that high calling? That we would be made like unto Christ, conformed unto His image, that we would know Him and the power of His, of his uh, resurrection, that we would be made conformable unto His death, that we would be made like Jesus Christ. It's not an optional thing. It's the will of God and the responsibility to the life of every believer. And then he uses the term election. And he's denoting the privileged station that the believer enjoys through Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is this. We ought to live in the world like God sees us. God sees us as a justified, blood-washed child of God. And we ought to live that way. Now, I understand your life and mine. There's going to be times we don't live up to that. And God knows that. He knows our frame that we're but dust. But this low level and standard of living of saying, I mean, listen, if you're saved, you're a sinner saved by the grace of God, right? Uh, but for far too long, we've been putting the emphasis on the sinner instead of on the saved. <laughs> we've been putting the emphasis uh, on the sin instead of on the grace. And I'm saying this, it, it's true we are sinners saved by grace. We shouldn't be high-minded in believing we were ever anything other than a sinner. But now you're saved by the grace of God. You're a child of God. And you have a responsibility to live your life in light of that truth. We see the responsibility to finish strong. Then we see the recipe to finishing strong. He says, if you do these things, what things? Well, the things that he just mentioned. He says, if you do these things, you shall never fall. Now, you can believe what you want about that term fall, but I mean, I believe it means to fall into disobedience. And I don't mean that it, uh, that, that it merely means to uh, disobey or to commit an act of disobedience. Every one of us does that. But you and I both know, and I think God in heaven knows it too, there's a difference between messing up and getting messed up. There, you with me? I'm going to say that again. I don't know if you are or not. There's a difference between messing up and getting messed up. 
everybody's going to mess up. But that don't mean you have to get messed up. Uh, everybody's going to make mistakes. But that doesn't mean that you have to let your life go into the ditch, get out of church, get out of the will of God, bust up your marriage, mess up your kids, let your life fall all to pieces. There ain't, if the standard is don't ever make a mistake, nobody can live up to that standard. But if the standard is don't let everything go to the dogs, I think we can handle that. He's saying this, the way that we do this is not merely by resolving ourselves, but rather it's by letting the life of Christ be exhibited through us. And then what does that produce? Well, we see the responsibility to finish strong and the recipe. But I like verse 11. It says this, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The word abundantly is key there. The whole verse swings on it. If you were to read that without the word abundantly, what it would seem to suggest is the only way you're going to get into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is by adding to your faith these things. But that's not what your Bible says. In fact, we're already told what the, the prerequisite is for being a part of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to be born again, right? But he doesn't say... For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you. Into the, but he says, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly. Abundantly. In other words, when you enter into the kingdom uh, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, me, I believe, you think what you want, but I think he's talking about the millennial kingdom here. He's saying when that day comes and you enter into that kingdom, when Christ sets up his kingdom, you won't enter into it a spiritual pauper, but you will enter into it in spiritual prosperity. In other words, I would say this. You say, preacher, I called on the Lord and I got saved. Am I going to make it to heaven? You will. You will. There's no question about it. If you have asked Christ to forgive you and save you and place your faith in Christ, you will make it to heaven. Can I ask you this? Are you going to barely make it? A lot of people are going to barely make it. Uh, they'll make it. It's not that they might make it. They will make it. But they're going to barely make it. In other words, as they make it, It'll be them and the grace of God, but there will not be any of a life that's lived under the glory of God that redounds under His glory and honor. We see the reward for finishing strong. I think about people in my life that serve the Lord and live for God, and I think about what fanfare. I know. I, listen, I know in heaven it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, but you can't tell me when the Apostle Paul walked through the gates that people didn't set up a little straight. You can't tell me that when some of these choice servants of God that love the Lord and, and live for the Lord, that when they get to heaven, that it wasn't noticed that they had come home. And I'm saying this, when I get to heaven, I don't want it to be me and the grace of God and a clean slate and nothing else. I want it to be that I've got a life that I've lived for the glory of God and a testimony of Him. That's what I want. The, the reward is, you'll go to heaven. Listen, if you've accepted Christ, you'll go. Uh, whether you live for Him or not. But I want to go with a life that has been lived in obedience unto His honor and glory. I want to add to my faith. I don't want to just barely get in. I want to abundantly get in for His glory. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You can slip out of your seat even right now. Here's the question tonight. Have you been adding to your faith? Or have you just been sitting back and Resting and relying on the fact of, well, hey, you know, I'm saved and that's good enough. Well, good enough to get you to heaven, that's true. But not good enough to live up to the grace and glory of God that He has saved you and called you unto. It's true, it's good enough to get you to heaven. 
Uh, and I'm not minimizing it, but I'm saying this. I want my life to be more than just barely getting in. I want my life to be lived for His glory. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.